I never did the Christian concert scene. But I could imagine if I, if I could learn that song, you know, I'd be in the mosh pit. I'd be down here. You know, nothing, he says, nothing's stopping me. I could do that. <clears throat> and y'all would all follow me. But we, we would, you know, we just got to get it down a little bit better to make that happen, I'm sure. This morning we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, 3, and 4 as we continue through this book. Last week we <clears throat> looked at first uh, chapter and a half on what God is doing when we're down, when we're in uh, a state of despondency. Um, this morning, it just enlarges and takes us out of that individual space, what God is doing for us individually to really what, what cure God has for the church in a larger um, context. So I want us to, to think about that as we we look through 1 Samuel 2, beginning at verse 11 and um, through chapter 4, thinking about the church here in Samuel and what uh, God is showing them or revealing to them about himself in their really despairing situation. I'm calling it despair because when I read about it, it, um, it doesn't make me feel good. Um, a church that's, that's desperate, a church that doesn't have a lot going for it other than God at this point. I don't know if some of you remembered a few years back there was a church in Florida that uh, wanted to declare an a international burn a Quran day. And when I saw that hit the news, I'm thinking, good grief, do you not have something better to do? You know, that you feel like as a church, your purpose or mission on this planet is to burn a Quran. It's like, you know, what chapter and verse you know, where do you go to for stuff like this? And it, it's, it's crazy how so many times that kind of stuff makes the news and uh, the real state of our church. It seems like, um, you know, what, what, makes, what makes the news is the church's hatred for certain things or certain social groups. The church is against the homosexuals, the church is against women preachers, or the church is against um, helping the illegal immigrants, or the, you know, it just goes on and on and on. It seems like what interests the news or the world or our culture is uh, our hatred for, for certain things, and then the church turns the wheels and says, well, that's what we're about. That's our purpose. And that's not the purpose of the church. You know, and it's like we don't even understand the church or the purpose of the church. And um, we, we redefine its purpose. And we've forgotten that, that we are the glorious bride of Christ. And if you just take that image that that's who we are, one of our primary purposes must be then to exalt and honor and faithfully live before our Lord and Redeemer. That's why we are here. And if we're his bride and he's our husband, just a faithful relationship with him would fulfill our purposes. But you don't, you don't hear that much in the news and it is despairing uh, when you think about the larger church or just the American church has no real concept of the purpose of the church and why we are here. Uh, look at some concerns that kind of come out of the text. First Samuel chapter 2, 
verse 11 and 12 says, uh, verse 11, Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy, this is Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. That's the condition of the church here. The priests, the preachers, the teachers in this church, they don't even know the Lord. And yet, they are leading this national church. That should despair the church, that our leaders don't even know the Lord. And when you look at some of the, the, the mega churches uh, in America today, um, the leaders do not know the Lord. And I don't just get despondent about that. I get despondent about and the thousands and thousands of people who are listening to them, they don't even know that their preacher doesn't know the Lord. Second Peter talks about false teachers. One of the characteristics of them that they deny the master that bought them. A preacher, the largest church in America, preaches that uh, a universalism doctrine that everybody's going to get to heaven. They might choose different paths, different ways, but they'll get there. A person who preaches that does not know that the Lord is the one who purchased his particular people with his own blood. He does not know the Lord. And yet he leads tens of thousands. Or even in our own state, the largest church in South Carolina, we have, we have this, this talk about uh, someone who, who needs to, to step back and go to treatment centers and seek psychologists and psychiatrists to get well and healthy. And you don't, you don't hear a message of someone needing to fall down and surrender and submit to Christ and His Word and be filled with His Spirit and transformed by His grace. You hear a completely different message not related to the Lord or the righteous standard of His commands. So as you look at these large movements of thousands of people in America, it, it, it brings me back to this. We, we've got leaders who do not know the Lord. And we wonder about them. And it bothers us. It hurts us. And that's what's going on in Samuel's day as well. We can make much about our music and miss the message or our politics and miss real preaching or our culture and miss the church or our decorum and miss diversity or our rules and miss righteousness. And there's so much of that going through even conservative churches today where their focus is more on the the rules of men than the righteousness of Christ. So I, it's not hard for me to kind of get into this text and start thinking about what's going on. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare. I can't tell you the number of mega churches you can go into and not find a Bible. Now, I know the Bible is on most people's phones today. As a matter of fact, I uh, spoke to the youth group a few weeks ago, and I asked them how many people here have a Bible. Almost every hand went up, and they were all using their phones. And I just said, this is awesome. This is cool that they do have access to the Bible, and they came with the intent 
to use it. But do you know how rare that is? That's rare. You can go into to, to mega churches and they're there to hear the stories of men. They're not really there to, to hear the word of God expounded and, and explored uh, with them. But rather just, just give me something that will help me through the day and, and through the week. Um, back when everybody had one of these, you know, I, it just, I couldn't believe going into a church of 5,000 and I was the only one who had one. It's like, what? And then the preacher stands up and reads one verse and then tells a lot of stories. I said, really? And the Word of God is rare, and that's, that hasn't changed because of technology. It's easier to get a copy now, but it's still rare that it's, that it's used. Or look at another verse, chapter 4, um, 1 and 2 says, The word of Samuel came to all of Israel. And now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, it says, Israel was defeated. So you've got this national church being defeated. Verse 3, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today? Before the Philistines, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of the enemies. It's like, okay, why has God just defeated us? I know, maybe he wants different methodology. Let's go get the Ark and let's, let's take the Ark with us. Let's, let's change the way we're doing things. And then we'll be victorious. You know, no repentance, no confrontation with their own sin, no wrestling with the Word of God. Let's just change the way we do it. And maybe that will give us more numbers, more nickels, more noise. That's the cliche in the church world. The church that's successful with more numbers, more nickels, and more noise. And lots of times, that's what we're looking for, is, is that business success. If you will just change the way you're doing it, if you'll do it this way, I guarantee you'll have more numbers. I guarantee you'll have more money. I guarantee you'll have events people want to come to. And a lot of people follow that path. It's, the salvation is in business models. It's in, it's in success. It's in numbers. Again, you don't see anyone say, no, the church is here to please the Lord. Our husband, our redeemer, our Lord, it's to glory in him. You know, as, as I think about the news, I said earlier as we began our service, I'd love maybe to come back. I'm not coming back, I'm going to heaven. But I'd love to come back as a physician or as a as a scientist that could explore the glories of God in a, in a realm I've not been able to dig deep into. But another thing I think would be so fun to, to have the job of a news reporter and be able to wake up every morning and say, I'm going to report on the thing that's absent from the news, and that is the glory of our God. Where today will I see His glory? 
will it be from the birth of a child to a late snow to the rattling of the earth's cages through thunder and lightning? I mean, it just it bothers me when I click on news channels and I never see a page that blows up the glory of God because that's news. That's where we need to be. That's who we need to see. He's the one who has all we need. And as you look at Samuel, you see they, they're missing it too. And the church is supposed to get this. And the fact that we don't, it's, it's dis- it will make you down and despairing as you, you see the church go through the motions and they can tell you how to be successful tell you how to get numbers they can tell you how to get people down the aisle and people on the roll and numbers and the money in the plate but they can't tell you about the justice and the righteousness and the mercy and the grace of the glory of God well I share some of that not to clue you into my heart as much as just get you into this text This is what is happening with the people of God. And I want you to see in the midst of that, what does God do? In in the midst of this kind of culture, this kind of church scene, God gives more cure. He reveals his manner. He reveals his message. He opens up to us another glimpse of his glory. And I want you to get it. First of all, the manner of his work. And, and by the way, before I go too much further, there's so much talk today about the church uh, beginning in the New Testament. And that's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. Look at um, seven, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 38. I'll just read it for you. It says this, Acts seven thirty-eight. This is the one who was in the church, in the congregation, in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Now he's talking about Moses on Mount Sinai who received the Ten Commandments to pass on to the church. But notice how uh, Stephen here describes Moses. Moses is the leader of the people of God. He's the leader of what? The church. The church that was meeting in the wilderness on Mount Sinai. The church didn't begin in the New Testament. The church existed with Moses. The church was given the Ten Commandments. That's the way God describes his church. His church is his people called out of the world to be his. And the church existed when God began doing that. And the church continues to this day. It's the oldest institution on the planet. It's the only one that continues to grow. It's the one that never wipes out. It's the one that is in heaven, myriads and myriads around the throne. So understand the church and don't buy into that argument. Well, that wasn't even a church back then. Why is he calling it the church? Yeah, it is the church. And it's the church in despair in 1 Samuel. I want you to think about this church and its leadership. So let's look at the church Uh, 1 Samuel 2, beginning at verse 12, just the sanctuary life. Because here's a little glimpse into the priest and their worship service uh, in these days. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now, 
The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests, so this is the priestly function, with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, because that's what the Bible has said, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, 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 no. But you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. How would you like a preacher who's, who comes packing? Says, give me, or I'm going to take it. And that's, that's the preachers here. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despise the offering of the Lord. Catch that. These priests... I don't know any way to describe it. They were selfish thieves. The, the plan was you're, you're supposed to come to church with your offerings and you present your sacrifices to the Lord. And, of course, the priest is supposed to get paid out of the sacrifice. So the plan was he would take his spear and he would uh, stick it into the pot where you were boiling your meat or your, your, your sacrifice. And whatever came out, that was the priest's portion you gave a portion to the Lord and then your family ate a portion well here we've got Eli and Hophni said you know we get so much when we put our our spear into that pot but just think if we got a three-pronged spear and put it into the spot pot we get what comes out right so let's change the spear rule to a three-pronged rule and let's stick it in there we are guaranteed to get the good stuff not a sliver. So they do that. They go in for, for more food. And by the way, um, Eli, who's, who's the dad, and you know, gets, we'll see in a minute, kind of gets mad at his sons. His sons, come on, let's be more righteous about ministering before the Lord. I'm sure that as the sons throw that three-pronged uh, fork into the pot, you don't have dad saying, hmm, I'm not going to eat any of that because you stole it. You get over to chapter uh, 4 when Eli dies, verse 18. He says he was a heavy man. He's sitting on a stump because he's fat. Just no, no bones about it. And why is he fat? Because his, his sons are getting all the meat they want. And not only are they getting all the meat they want... You were supposed to burn the fat, according to the law in Leviticus, the fat belonged to the Lord. So you're supposed to burn that as a fragrance to the Lord. They come along and say, wait, wait, don't burn it yet. I want my part. That's the good stuff. They say, well, the Lord said we need to burn it. No, no, no. I want it raw. If you disagree with me, I'm, I'll just take it. So they're getting, they're getting all of that. They're getting the meat. They're getting anything they want. That's, and what does God say about it? He says, they're not coming to minister to the Lord. They're not coming to please the Lord. They're coming to get. They're coming to get for themselves. 
how they've completely turned the focus of worship around. What, what do I get? How can I get more from it? Instead of, how can I give more to the Lord? They despise offerings to the Lord. They reveled in offerings for themselves. Oh, it makes you despondent. That's the condition so many churches. It's all about what, how I can get more for myself, how I can be helped. Give me a help message. It's not about how I can give and bless and sacrifice to and please my Redeemer. Well, second, we see not only that church life, we see the social life. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 2, now Eli was very old and he heard that his sons were doing what they were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things, evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. So, so you see here, Eli does get upset with his sons at some point. He gets upset over their adultery, their unfaithfulness sexually. There's, there's no mention in Hophni and Phineas's life about their love of their wives and their love of their children and their love of their family and leading their family before the Lord. They were socially corrupt, and everybody knew it. And Eli says, you know, I'm hearing about it from everybody. Everybody knows this is just evil. It's wrong. And yet this is the life you live um, rather than building a biblical family before the Lord. Well, it should make you lament. Verse 27 and following, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel? to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me, making yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares... I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But not now, the Lord declares. Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be, uh, not be an old man in your house. Wait, stop and think about that. How he... We don't sometimes cherish the old man. He says, part of the judgment here is you guys are not honoring me. I said, those who honor me, I will honor, but you're not doing that. And so all the blessings, and I was going to give you, I'm not going to give you. And, and did you catch the part about particular atonement? 
It says, out of all the world, I particularly chose you. Who gets this privilege? You are my church. And you are going to get all the inheritance of my church. But you don't come and live like my church. And one of the blessings I'm going to take away is the old man blessing. That's, in other words, you're not going to have an old wise person in your home where you can go to them and say, Papa, what's a word from the Lord? That person won't exist for you anymore. Because in rejecting me, you're rejecting these people that I put on earth to give you wisdom and guidance. And it goes on. You, verse 32, you, uh, verse 33, Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping, and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. God wants a man after his own heart. He says, I'm going to raise that man up. If you're not going to disciple and train and live for me, I'll come at it a different way. But that's, that's what's got to happen. So God punishes, but he also supplies going to raise up a new faithful and honorable priest, someone who has a heart after God, whose focus is on the glory of God and not on what men can get. Now, in the midst of all this, you could miss it if you didn't pay attention to details. In the midst of something that just should really bring you down and low, God gives a repeating theme and how he's supplying grace. And I don't want you to miss it. Look at verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but, here's the theme, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So the boy, Samuel. Again, verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. Chapter 2, verse 26. Now the boy... Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. The emphasis, he's still growing. He, he's pleasing the Lord. He's ministering to the Lord. He's ministering to the Lord. He keeps pleasing the Lord. He keeps growing up. And God loves him. <coughs> and people are starting to recognize it. And so he's growing in favor with them too. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the boy, Samuel, was ministering who? To the Lord before Eli. And the word from the Lord was rare in those days. But don't miss that little quiet display of grace and blessing. One person here is getting it. And this one person, people, some people notice, but he's not on the scene in a big way. Eli and Hophni are still cooking the dinner. But there's a boy. A youngster. 
And when you watch him, it's always God-centered. It's always God-focused. It's always about what he can give to the Lord. It's not about him. What a stark contrast. And then the promise at the end of chapter 2, and I'm going to use that because this is one who has the right heart after me. Wonder about all the, the things that happen that the world notices. It never makes the news. But these quiet little things that are world changers. How many inventions, how many cool things have happened because somebody was quietly on their knees praying or studying? You want to see something significant, something that's world-changing? You look at the man who quietly goes about having family worship in his home. The man or the woman who's having what we call quiet time. Just getting before the Lord and ministering to the Lord. Honoring Him by listening to His Word. And praying His Word after they read it. And seeking the Lord's will and the Lord's glory. You look to that that mom who quietly goes to the nursery and says this child is made in the image of God and I want to be a part of raising this child up for the glory of the Lord. Or for the one who spends their time saying I want to disciple the nations. I will, I will come and get a discipleship group going. You see that kind of stuff happens quietly. A lot of times nobody thanks them, nobody says anything. A lot of times people don't even notice it. But who do you suppose God uses for the honor and glory of his name? It's the people who are quietly doing it. And that's what you see in this text. Our hope for revival is not numbers, noise, and nickels. Our hope for revival is that some faithful soul is on their knees pouring out their heart before God. Because God's going to use that person. He's going to bless a church as a result. That's the glorious manner in which God works. And you can take some time today and just just meditate on that. I was thinking coming here, I said, wow, I I don't have enough time to think through all the quiet revivals that happened through Scripture. Moses was a baby in a basket when the noise was killing babies. And quietly God prepared him for 80 years before he comes and leads the people out. Or Joseph in a prison, quietly discarded. You, you can go to Daniel, you, you, Jesus, the disciples. I mean, you just go one after another. Which one comes walking an aisle saying, hey, I'm your man? Nobody. Even Jesus, as he hung on the cross, you know, I would have thought, uh, hey, guys, I'm fixing to go do this sacrificial thing, and you pay particular attention because I'm only going to do this once. You know? I want to make sure you get this. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He says, like a lamb who is silent before his shearers, quietly. 
goes to the cross. And it changes everything. So marvel at the manner in which God works. If you don't see it, you'll miss it. It's so easy to miss God's quiet, yet the most significant works that are changing our world and our church. Well, that's the manner God so typically works, and you see it working here. Second, I want you to see his message, the way he communicates. Chapter 3, verse 1, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. How did they get it? Through visions. Visions were infrequent. So nobody was getting a, a word from the Lord. Eli should have been getting it. Hophni and Phinehas should have been getting it. But they weren't interested in getting it. And they weren't getting it. It was extremely rare. As a matter of fact, it's so rare. Notice how Samuel starts getting it. <coughs> uh, chapter 3, verse 2. So it happened at the time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And then he ran to Eli, and he said, here I am. You called me? But he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down again. In other words, go back to bed. I'm not calling. Verse 6, the Lord called yet again, Samuel. I don't really have a God voice. Samuel. How's, how's God supposed to do that? So, so Samuel arose, and he went to Eli, and he said, here I am. You called me. And he like. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Verse 7. Now Samuel did not uh, yet know the Lord. So there's a sense, and even though he's worshiping and ministering to the Lord, he didn't know in the sense that God spoke to him, that he, he was going to be the new priest. He didn't know about this, this arrangement yet. So he, he didn't know what was going on. He thought, you know, Eli was calling him. Verse 8. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he rose and he went to Eli and said, here I am. Eli finally figured out, wait a minute. This hadn't happened in a long time. It's rare. But that's God speaking to you. And so go back to bed. But this time when you hear the word Samuel, just trust me. It's not me. It's God. And so the right response when God says to you, Samuel, the right response is, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm listening. Give it to me, whatever it is. And whatever he says, then you've got to come and give it to me, whether it's good or bad. That's the summary. How rare is the word of God? It is so rare that God had to call four times before Samuel even understood what it was. I mean, it's extremely rare. Or did Eli even figure it out? After three times, Eli said, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, now I know what's going on. Um, that's how rare it was. And the message when it's that rare is, is a message of judgment. Uh, so chapter uh, 3, verse 11, the Lord uh, said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And it's kind of like, just be unbelievable. When you tell them what I'm fixing to tell you, they're, they're going to shake their heads. They're not even going to believe it. In that day, verse 12, I will carry out against Eli all that I spoke Acts chapter 2, concerning his house from the beginning to the end. I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever. The iniquity which he knew, 
because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. See, Eli got accustomed to the good food. He didn't rebuke his own sons. He didn't be the godly father he was supposed to be. He didn't take them out of office in the church. He let it go. He says, I've promised judgment. I'm bringing judgment. So that's the message there, that Samuel gets this message of judgment. But at the same time, for the people, there's going to be comfort. Verse 19, then Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So before Eli gets killed, before Hophni and Phinehas get killed on the same day, God's already established Samuel as the new preacher in town, the new priest. Everybody knew. So as soon as Hophni and Phinehas and Eli die, everybody looks to Samuel. Okay, you're the new guy. And that's cool because you actually hear God. You actually know his, his word. You know the Bible. And, and so you can give us biblical direction. So that's the comfort in the midst of judgment. Uh, we have this message from God that judgment is the result of our sin. Comfort is found by looking at God's word. You know, um, it just dawned on me as I was preparing this message through here, how, how a rare word from God leads to despair, to doubt, to fear. You know, whenever you're in that moment, I just wish I could hear. I wish I could know what God wants me to do. When you're in that situation, it's, it's fearful. It's, it's, it, you have so much confusion. It reminded me when, when Patty and I were dating. Uh, dating world's changed so much, by the way. You know, uh, my wife was faithful when we were dating and we were apart. Uh, she wrote me a letter every day. Snail mail, okay? Snail mail. So, but if, if, if a holiday or weekend or something was such a way, the mailman didn't deliver. So every now and then, I would not get a letter for two or three days, and it's like, oh, she doesn't love me anymore. What happened to the letters? You know, it created doubt, created fear, because I didn't have a word from her. It didn't dawn on me till now, and I apologize. I did not send the letter every day. So I was creating the doubt and the fear and despair for her. I'm not sure I did it every week, maybe every month. I I wasn't good. She did it every day. And the fact that we can hear from God every day, what a sweet privilege. Because when you don't hear, it's going to create confusion and doubt and fear. And that's where the people were until Samuel. And then they began hearing, every time they met with Samuel, they began hearing a word from the Lord. That's God's cure for his church, is to hear his word. That's why we come to hear it preached and taught, because it's God speaking to us and waking us up and keeping us on track, doing what God wants. The absence of God's word is a great judgment. Uh, Look at Amos chapter 8, just a quick summary of that as you get to the the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos. He's the third one of those. 
Amos chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from north even to east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but won't find it. God says, that's a judgment. If you're in a church that doesn't get a word from the Lord, if you're in a nation that doesn't get a word from the Lord, you're under God's judgment. And there are thousands and thousands of folks who are in churches. Not only does the preacher not hear the word of the Lord, the people don't ever get it. It's rare for the preacher to have it. It's rare for the people. And God says, that's judgment. Uh, do we see our Bibles in our homes, in our churches, in our studies? Thank God for the Bible. 66 inerrant, infallible books that God has given to us to know Him and to know how to live before Him. To live in such a way that it's our standard, it's our guide, it's our direction. Um, wonderful to have that message. And God's saying, that's a cure. I'm going to bring it to you through Samuel. Now, let's go on. Uh, in First Samuel, people misunderstand uh, God's ways oftentimes. I've already shown a little bit in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 I read earlier, how they want to just do different methodology. God, if that's what you want us to do, take the ark. We'll do the, the ark thing. We'll take the ark into battle because the ark has your presence. We know you need to be with us, so we'll just take the ark. It's a God in a box kind of mentality. Verse 4 of chapter 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas uh, were with the ark of the covenant of God. Yeah, a lot of good that's going to do. I'm going to take the preachers who are supposed to be with the ark... We're going to take all of that into battle with us. Then perhaps we will be victorious. They thought they could guarantee their success by getting God's presence or getting religious stuff into their battle. Well, not so. Um, verse 5, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp. All Israel shouted, oh, this is great. So the earth resounded. When the Philistines, verse 6, heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does this noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. I guess there was some, um, you know, runner, you know, probably trying to stick it in their eye kind of thing, ran a, hey, we just brought the ark. <laughs> We're going to get you now. Somehow they understood. Verse 8, so they say, Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Uh, take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore be men and fight. So the Philistines knew that the uh, Israelites were pulling the religious card on them, but they man up, and they go to battle anyway. Well, they go to battle. They don't only wipe out the Israelites again. They take the ark. Um, I'll just skip down. Um, uh, the man, uh, verse 16, the man said to Eli, I am the one, this is a guy coming back to re report to Eli who stayed home. 
I'm the man who said to Eli, I am the one that came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, well, how do things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There was also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward on, uh, beside the gate, and his, his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. Um, so you see just the, the misunderstanding of God's ways. Their concern was, you know, let's do something religious. Let's change our methods. Let's make it work. Um, God will be with us if we'll, if we'll do it this way. And it didn't happen. God let them down. Will God let you down? If you don't read the word, you don't seek preachers who know the word, and you just do it your way, you, come, you invent a way that should guarantee success. I remember once we, we hired a babysitter to be at our house at 5 o'clock because we had a special uh, function to be at by 6, and the babysitter didn't come, forgot all about it. When I finally saw her and had words with her, you know, I said, I, I depended on you. I counted on you. I missed a very important function because of you. You ever felt that way? I'm missing something. How about with God? God, I, I did all of these things for you, didn't? And I counted on you. I depended on you to give me victory. There's victory in Jesus, right? And God in heaven is shaking his head. How stupid is this? My son thinks I'm a God in a box. And he can take me into his battles to do what he wants to do. And that I'm just going to honor that. And please with that. Be pleased with that. Um, so many times, our, the reason for our despair is, is our misunderstanding of God's ways. God doesn't respond to our pressure tactics. God doesn't respond to our, our cool inventions of how to do stuff differently. Um, God responds to those who uh, are seeking his word and his ways. Verse 21 of chapter 4, and then she called the boy... Uh, um, Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law her husband uh, she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken this mother who giving birth to a son in the midst of all of this says what we're going to call him call him Ichabod that's just that's what just happened he was born at the time the glory of God left the building so our lives should be about the glory of God and seeing the glory and exalting the glorious one and knowing his glory. It's like nobody cares anymore. And the glory has gone. Well, we're going to pick up the story next week and after to see how the glory, where the glory is and how it returns. But don't misunderstand. She was, she was getting something there. Our lives need to be about God, not about us. 
doesn't need to be about our methods. It needs to be about God and His glory. And, and we seem to be a church who's missing that. We're missing the way God works through His people bringing the Word. We, we miss the importance of the Word. We miss the importance of surrender and submission to God and being God-centered in all we are doing. And if that's where we are, that's a bad place. So much of our world is there. I'm thankful for a church that gets it. Perhaps God will use us um, that we'll be the quiet ones that get the message of God. Appreciate that quiet manner in which God works. Let's appreciate and thank God for the scriptures that he gives us and commit ourselves to reading and hearing from God daily. Let's not misunderstand his ways and think they've, he's changed. He's a God that does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His way is perfect. He is righteous. He is just. And we need to worship that and, and glory in that. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy for me to click on the news and get into a state of despair. And yet I'm so thankful for a God who speaks and a God who teaches and a God who's given me a complete set of scripture. I'm so thankful for a local church body who hungers and thirsts for you and your word. Father, help us to see that those who don't know the Lord as you've described in Samuel, they're worthless as far as you're concerned. Let us not give worth and value to those you've declared worthless. Let us be those who declare value and worth is found in knowing you and hearing your word and ministering to you. Father, use us to give hope to a world that thinks the purpose of the church is to join some group and be against something rather than to truly declare and proclaim the glory of God. Father, forgive us for being tricked and deceived by the evil one. Let us come back now through repentance to see Christ in him only. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.